Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Good morning. My name is Kevin O'Connor. Welcome to Arden First. We're so glad you decided to join us today. We're so, I mean, blessed, honored, all of those things. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Today... We begin the home stretch of our series from darkness into light as we celebrate Palm Sunday, as you saw with our wonderful children here. Just man, that was inspiring. We celebrate Palm Sunday because it's the day that Jesus and his entourage triumphantly entered into Jerusalem and triggered a series of events that would change the course of human history. And to think, it all started with a lock. The title of today's message, what we're going to talk about today, is to walk with Jesus and what Jesus did by what he experienced in what is known as Holy Week or Passion Week is invite every person who has ever lived to take a walk. Walk with him through the experiences that he experienced during this week. This week at First Arden, or this First Arden, this week at Arden First, we'll experience together the events of Good Friday and Easter. And I tell you the truth, man, I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. Today, however, we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. And then an overview of what happened during this week. And what I want to do is tie together these events in order to give us an idea of what walking with Jesus is really like. As Pastor Timothy elaborated so well a couple weeks ago as he kicked the series off, Jesus never hid from his followers the difficulties of being his disciple. He was always clear that the path that leads to life is hard and full of tough choices. He referred to a passage from Luke 14 where Jesus discusses the cost of discipleship. I'd like to quote a passage that he mentioned but it comes from Matthew chapter 16, and it's similar, though perhaps no, quite, not quite as strident as the passage from, from, uh, you know, from Luke. So here we go. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, I've always, I've always believed, right? I shouldn't say I've always believed, but I've come to believe this over time, is that the more I studied the Word, the more, and it largely came to me as I was, you know, becoming a pastor and a teacher, is that our faith is full of paradox. You know, paradox is something that, while it seems to be kind of far-fetched, maybe even false, is nevertheless true. This is one of those paradoxes of our faith. I like to call it the paradox of life. 
This is where, in order to live, you must die. There's plenty of them. A couple of ones that we're familiar with. In order to, in order to receive, you must give. In order to lead, you must serve. Just a few of the many paradoxes of our faith. And the more you dig in and the more you study the Bible and the Word of God, you begin to see that, you know what? When Jesus said He is not of this world and that His kingdom is not of this world, it begins to make sense, doesn't it? What Jesus is describing here, however, in this passage is that to be His follower, to be His disciple, is to choose the hard way, the narrow path, the way of sacrifice and surrender. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that this message was really all that clear to those who were closest to Jesus, let alone the ones who were casually following Him just to see what He was going to do next. His journey during Passion Week that starts on Palm Sunday gave those of us who would be His followers an idea of what walking in His footsteps would be like. If we were to look at each day subsequently, that we consider significant during the Passion Week and the events that occurred on those particular days, we would get an overview of what being a follower of Jesus was really like. There's four of them. I want to talk about them. So let's take a look at them, if you will. If you're taking notes, take out your, 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 your message outline, your listening guides. You're going to want to write this down for sure. To walk with Jesus is to walk the walk of triumph. On Palm Sunday, many celebrate Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem to mark the beginning of Passion Week. You could go into many churches, just like ours, this morning, and they would have a ceremony similar to the one that we have, where people would march into church waving palms as described in the Bible. But you know what? It wasn't just the ride. It was what was said while he entered. Consider this passage from John chapter 12. It's going to serve as more or less as our text for today. I'm going to read to you from chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. I'm also going to read to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Here we go. Follow along, please. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now understand something. Back in the days of King Josiah, they pretty much made a proclamation that if you're going to celebrate Passover, which is what we're, what we're, what we're doing right here, is you've got to come to Jerusalem. You've got to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. You can celebrate it with your families like you've always done, but you've got to do it in Jerusalem. So understand something. Now this is, mind you, several thousand years ago. Um... The historian Josephus tells us that right around the time of 73, there was probably about 2.5 to 2.6 million pilgrims into Jerusalem. Then we figure probably around the time that Jesus was, around 30, 30, 33 A.D., probably close to 2 million visitors into Jerusalem. Now, could you imagine, I mean, I know Jerusalem is probably bigger than Arden, but could you imagine two people showing up at Arden? Or two people showing up in two million people showing up in Asheville, what that would be like. 
So this, when, when John says the next day a large crowd had come to the, that had come to the feast, it was talking about this massive influx of people from throughout the Mediterranean world were coming to celebrate Passover. And they heard that Jesus was coming as well. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Man, there's a lot here. Let's take a minute and just park here for just a moment. Let's add a little context to what we're talking about. First thing is, you know, I said a little earlier that it's not just the walk that he took. It's what, what was said while, while, while he was coming in. The whole idea, the word Hosanna is actually, it's, 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 it's a Greek word, but it's kind of translated from a couple of Hebrew words. The Hebrew words for Hosanna were Yasha and Na. Yasha is translated as save. And na is translated as now. So when these people were crying out Hosanna or Yashana, what they were saying is, save now. Now mind you, what the people in the day were looking for in a Savior was significantly different than what Jesus was bringing and the idea that he came in on a donkey tells us exactly that. You see, if you go back a couple of hundred years, what you find is there was a great king. His name was Judas Maccabeus. And he rode into Jerusalem. Actually, I think it might have been his brother, Simon. But these guys, what they did was they rode into Jerusalem after, after basically kicking the Seleucids out of, out of, uh, out of, uh, out of Jerusalem. What had happened was a, a, a horrible king, named Antiochus Epiphanes, had sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. The Jews kind of took that personally. And so what they did was they basically plotted from that time forward to get those guys out of there. At one point in time, the, uh, the Seleucids, the empire, had given, given up the temple to the, to the Jews, but also that wasn't good enough. They wanted them kicked off the mountain. They did. They got their way. And what happened was, as you might imagine, they all ran out, all of the Jews, all of the, ran out of the city, and they welcomed in the conquering king. They welcomed in Simon Maccabeus, who was riding in on his royal steed, on a beautiful horse, no doubt. And they were laying palm branches. And the palm branches were a sign of victory, but not just any kind of victory, a military victory. So let's think about this for just a minute. As Jesus came strolling into to Jerusalem with all these people, all of these visitors, laying down palm branches and yelling out, Hosanna or Yashana. What do you think they were looking for? Yeah. Chances are they were looking for a they were looking for a military victory. They were looking for somebody who was going to overthrow the Romans. And here's what you find. You find Jesus didn't come strolling in on a, on a, on a fine, magnificent horse. He came in on a little donkey. On a colt. I mean, not just a donkey. Donkeys aren't, weren't that big in any way. 
But I mean, it was even it was a it was it was a yearling, basically, is what a, a, a donkey that had never been ridden. That passage that we just read, that couple, that that those last couple of verses came to us from from Zechariah in the Old Testament. What I want to do is, as you'll find oftentimes when you read in the in the Bible, what you often times find, especially in the New Testament, they quote in the gospel, especially Matthew. He's real good for this because he's really speaking to he's speaking to the Jewish to the Jewish converts at that time. What you see is they quote snippets out of the Old Testament. But what I want to do is this what I'm going to read is just two verses. It comes to us from Je- uh, Zechariah chapter nine, verses nine and ten. It's not going to be anywhere, so I'm going to ask you to listen. But I think you'll get the you'll get the drift of where Jesus is going. Check this out. Starting in verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's not just a donkey, but it's a donkey's baby. It's a baby donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. I think when we consider that, what we see is it kind of takes away the idea of some magnificent military victory. You see, the Prince of Peace came strolling into Jerusalem to bring peace on the back of a humble donkey. Let me continue. His disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't understand. Why, you know, what, what's, what's the deal with the donkeys and the, and the palm branches? But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had to be done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Now, mind you, this had just happened not long before this. You know, when he called, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Man, they just kept, they were in Jerusalem. They kept saying, this called a dead dude out of a grave, man. That's what this guy did. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. They wanted to see this guy who was calling dead people out of graves. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This was a huge fear for, for the Pharisees. Because... I'd like to think it was altruistic because they were all concerned about the safety of their people. But I'm old enough to know human nature. They didn't want their gig ruined that they had. You know, they were, they were, they, when, when they walked down the street, people moved aside. They said, you know, called them teacher and rabbi and all this stuff. They had it, they had, they had it pretty good. And they didn't want to see that wrecked. But it goes a little further than that even. You see, the Jews believed that the greatest enemy to their ascent to national greatness, even their very existence, was the Romans. However, Jesus knew it was much deeper and more insidious than that. 
fact is, many of us today, think about it, many of us today feel that the bane of our existence, the thing that's holding us back from being everything that we want to be or have been called to be, is some superficial issue. I don't know. Like getting fat, or growing old, or not having enough money, or not having enough prestige. Or perhaps it's the liberals, or the conservatives, or who the president is, or who the president isn't. I don't know. But my friends, it goes much deeper than that. It goes to the brokenness of our nature, and understand this. There is no military or political leader or diet or exercise program or financial plan that can fix it. That will address what truly ails us. Jesus knew what he was getting himself into when he made that walk into Jerusalem. He knew the cost. He knew the pain. And he knew the sacrifice that would be required. And because of his great love for his Father, and hear me on this, because of his great love for us, he did it anyway. Luke's rendition of this narrative states that a group of Pharisees enjoined Jesus to rebuke the people for their cries to save them, for the Hashanahs. And what he said to him is telling. He said, you know, I'm going to paraphrase this. Take a little preacher's license. Hope you don't mind. And what he said was this. He said, you know, I could do that. But then you know what would happen? The rocks would cry out. Here's Jesus recognizing and being recognized for who he was to the glory of God. Son of David. Savior. The irony is this. The people who were waving palms and crying Hosanna had everything 180 degrees out of phase. They thought they needed saved from the Romans when in fact what they needed was saved from themselves, from their very nature. The same people who were crying Hosanna on Sunday will be the ones who cry crucify Him on Friday. Jesus knew this. And it didn't stop Him from making that walk. To walk the walk of Jesus means that through Him we will experience triumph in our lives, but perhaps not in the way that we may think or even maybe desire. You see, the triumph that Jesus brings is triumph over our brokenness, over our sin, over death, triumph over ourselves and our sin nature. And along the way of triumph, we will often see the clouds of trouble in the horizon. But we must never, ever stop us. That that must never stop us from being fully present and drinking deeply of the victories that God has given us. Because it is in experiencing His triumph, His victory, that will help see us through the tough stuff that will inevitably follow.
To walk the walk with Jesus is to walk the walk of triumph. Number two, write this down. To walk the walk with Jesus is also to walk the walk of intimacy. I made this admission at the first service, and I'll do it for you guys too, because I don't want to leave you out. I love John's gospel. You know why? Because I think it gives us the most complete picture of the person and nature of Jesus. In John's gospel, we see Jesus at his most divine. Here's some examples. We see him change water into wine in John 2. And in John 4, we see him heal an official son. He heals a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. And in John 6, he feeds a multitude with a few loaves and fishes. And he also walks on water. In John 11, who could forget this? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And in John 20, of course... He raises from the dead himself. Conversely, almost paradoxically, I might add, we also get to see Jesus at his most human. We see him, (laughs) we see him as he argues with his mom in John chapter 2. He gets angry with the money changers in the temple, also in John chapter 2. In John chapter 4, in his trip through Samaria, or to Samaria, I should say, we see him exhausted and thirsty after a long journey. In chapter 11, we see him become angry, almost enraged, and then cry at the death of a close friend and the subsequent grief of his family. We see him reveal himself and commune with his closest friends in John chapters 13 through 17. You see, Jesus shows us what it is to be vulnerable, to be intimate, to be human. Here's something I've noticed about Jesus. He never, ever seemed to do anything of any consequence with respect to his ministry by himself, alone. He always had someone with him, usually his closest friends. I think that intimacy was very important to him because people were very important to him. To be intimate is to be transparent. It's to allow people into all areas of your life, not just to hold you accountable, but so that they may rejoice with you in your triumphs. And in your victories, so that they may weep with you and encourage you through your struggles. John's Gospel has 21 chapters. Five of them, nearly 25% of the book by chapter, by chapter count, is spent on one event. That's the Last Supper. During this time, Jesus shows his disciples what it is to lead by serving. He does for them what only the lowliest of servants did back in the day, which is to wash their feet. Every one of them, including, 
including the one who would ultimately betray him. He shares the Passover meal with them, which is usually done within the intimacy of a gathered family. He begins to reveal his plan for the world and the part his disciples would eventually play in it. But first, first, he reveals what each of these men mean to him on a strictly human level. Check out chapter 15 and verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, they are now friends. Friends because of the transparency that Jesus models. Because of what Jesus subsequently did at Calvary's cross in the empty tomb. He makes it possible. He invites us into the same intimacy with himself and his Father. Once again, the Apostle John, this time from his first letter. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus modeled for us what I like to call sacred community. Life in the kingdom of God, which is what he came to model. See, a lot of people... A lot of people believe that Jesus came to die, but that's not the whole truth. Jesus came to live. Jesus came to show us what a kingdom life was, what it looked like. And that's why some of the things he said so flummoxed. I mean, we could see it even now. Some of the things that he said so flummoxed everybody that was around him. It's like, man, nobody's talked like this. Yeah, it's because... No one's gotten a glimpse of the kingdom of God. A lot of people talk about the gospel. I happen to think the most important part of the gospel was mentioned in Mark chapter 1. Early on, when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't stop there. Jesus modeled what I like to call sacred community, just as I said before. He once again invites us. He doesn't just invite us. He commands us to seek out and live out the life that he modeled with one another. The new commandment. John 13, 34 and 35. The new command I give you. That you love one another. In the manner that I have loved you, love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. He actually modeled this for us. Caring for one another, he calls us to share our lives with one another, to do life together. Loving one another as he first loved us, all for the glory of God. He tells us that this sacred community, this sacred intimacy, is the manner in which the world will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. We don't get there by out-arguing or out-debating or out-fighting people. And Greg Laurie in his book, 
God of a second chance said, and this just, this just rocked my world when I first read this 20, 25 years ago, is that you know how the, 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 the early church, the church that we read in John, or not John, but in Acts chapter 2, the early church turned the known world upside down, and they didn't do it by, by, by conquering, they didn't do it by fighting, they didn't do it by arguing. They did it by out-loving and out-serving. Friends, I truly believe, just as, just as Jesus said, that's how we're going to do it today. To walk the walk with Jesus is to walk the walk of intimacy. See, Jesus' life was about as full as anyone's could possibly be. Jesus experienced highs, perhaps, that no person has ever experienced as witnessed by the walk into Jerusalem. I mean, that's heady stuff. You have people saying, Hosanna, save us, all this stuff, laying palms down. Don't understand something. It wasn't lost on Jesus what these people were asking either, what they were saying. The thing is, Jesus also tasted some of the lowest lows that could have ever been experienced as well. For example, his betrayal to the Romans and the Jewish leaders at the hand of one of his own, which leads to point number three. Write this down, please. To walk the walk with Jesus is to walk the walk of betrayal. Betrayal is, I believe, human brokenness at its basest level. Self-interest, or at least what we perceive it to be, has been at the core of every thread of human sin imaginable, starting with the very first one in the garden so long, long ago. It started with the seed of doubt, sown by the enemy of our souls, and blew up when we thought we had to fend for ourselves at the cost of our relationship with God. Now, you've no doubt heard the saying, he or she would sell their soul. Well, this is where it started. When we betrayed God, when we thought we could no longer trust him, and we sold ourselves to the highest bidder. You talk about a sucker's game. Yet so often, sadly, we still fall for it. You know, it was one thing for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas. You get the feeling they weren't all that close, you know? But to be betrayed by Peter, one of his best friends, that had to be painful, even though he knew it was coming. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, I've often tried to imagine the look that Jesus gave Peter at that moment. You know, it used to be, I used to think, and I used to picture that it would be a look of anger, you know, of disappointment, of hurt. But you know what? I'm 
convinced, and I say this because the longer I walk with him and the more I get to know him, I'm convinced that it was none of these. Here's what I've come to believe the look was. Grace. Forgiveness. Love. I don't think for a minute that Peter was a bad guy, but I do think he was a perfect specimen of humanity. A man who was horribly broken and horribly disfigured, whose nature was a mess, just like ours. I also think that he could no more recognize the look of grace that his Savior was given than many of us could recognize now in the midst of our brokenness. But Peter's and our failure to recognize it doesn't make it any less true, any less real, any less effective. Betrayal may be among the worst things that we as human beings can experience. I think the fear of it keeps many of us from what I like to call our God destiny, the preferred future that God desires for us, because we aren't willing to risk the possibility of the pain in order to get to the place that God desires us to be. Even as a follower of Christ, betrayal is very real because human brokenness is very real. And the more we subject ourselves to broken human beings, the same ones Jesus died for, by the way, the same ones he's calling us to reach out to, the more we subject ourselves to the reality that we will be betrayed. And what is known as the Olivet Discourse Jesus gives us a hint at what it takes to overcome the paralyzing fear of betrayal. Let me read to you a passage from Mark's rendition of it. It comes from chapter 13, two verses, 12 and 13. Check this out. And brother will deliver brother over, over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you, you, will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see it? You know what, if, if, you, if, you, if you get to know me, it's something that you'll hear me speak of relentlessly. And that is the need, the necessity of perseverance. You see, Jesus knew it was coming, the betrayal. And he did what he had to do anyway. He endured, he persevered, and because he did, everyone who has ever drawn a breath has the chance to be restored to the one who created them and loves them fiercely. Think about this. How many people do you know in your life who might have the chance to experience the love and grace of God in Christ if you would just take the risk of betrayal because your love for God and your desire to see His will be done is greater than even your greatest fear. I think it was C.S. Lewis 
who once said that when you love deeply, you will be hurt badly. But it's still worth it. You take the risk and you love deeply. Because that's what Jesus did. Perseverance through the toughest stuff that life can throw at us also opens up the possibility for this one last leg, number four. Write this down. To walk the walk with Jesus is to walk the walk of glory. Because Jesus endured the pain of the cross and all that went along with it, he also experienced the glory of fulfilling his Father's will as demonstrated by his resurrection and ascension. Think about this. Can you imagine for just a moment how his disciples felt when they heard these words? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Now mind you, the disciples, their trust was stretched to the breaking point when Jesus was crucified. Everything that they had lived for during the previous three years, everything they had dreamed of seemed to die on that cross. But for those who believed, those who persevered, those who trusted in the faithfulness of God to fulfill that which he promised, saw with the resurrection the beginning of a new reality, one filled with the possibility of a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. Perseverance and faithfulness are necessary conditions if we are to experience the glory that God promises to those who believe. Now, many of us are familiar with the parable of talents. In it, the master rewards those who have been faithful. Matthew 25, take a listen. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of of your master. You know, it used to be that I, when, I, when I would read this, I would think, man, the greatest thing, the greatest thing, you know, when, 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 we, when, we, when we enter the kingdom, the greatest thing is to be set over much. But you know what? Once again, as I've matured in my walk with Christ and I, as I walk more intimately with Him, I've come to the conclusion that in that verse, the thing that I'm looking for the most is not power or prestige or the ac accumulation of, you know, the greatest thing that, I, thing that I look forward to the most is to enter into His joy. God rewards seemingly infinitesimal amounts of faithfulness with rewards, with rewards that we can't even begin to fathom. The greatest of which, I believe, is to be in His glorious presence always. In his letter to the Romans, Paul compares the struggles of this life with the glory that is promised to us. And you know what? It isn't even close. Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. To walk the walk with Christ is to walk the walk of triumph, the walk of intimacy, the walk of betrayal, the walk of glory. All these things Jesus experienced during the week of his passion. And he invites us to experience them as well. As we enter into this week that is called holy, I would pray for the faith and trust that you will need to walk this walk. May what you experience in the upcoming week forever change the trajectory of your journey. May you experience grace as you have never experienced it before. The grace that is needed to become a mirror image of the one who gave it all for you. Let's pray.